Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and I'm joined by Ralph Cavana, Senior Attorney at the Natural Resources Defense Council. He's co-director of NRDC's energy program. I've known and respected Ralph for years, and I'm delighted to have him on the podcast today. Ralph, welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic Podcast. It's good to see you again. And Ted, it's great to see you. How are you? Fine, thank you. You look, you look good. You look healthy, and uh, I'm sure you're working hard. Let's start with uh, just going all the way back before we get into your illustrious career at NRDC. Where'd you grow up? Uh, Ted, I grew up in the state of New Hampshire, which is where I was born, and went. And I, I'm a 1970 graduate of Portsmouth Senior High School. No kidding. No kidding. I, I had you. I, I had you pegged on the West Coast, so I'm glad I. Asked. Well, I ended up there. I know, but off you went to off you went to Yale. That's uh, right. And what did you study as an undergraduate? Uh, as an undergraduate, I was a political science major. Uh, my first real exposure to environmental law, Ted, was in one of the first environmental law classes that was ever taught by a professor named Bruce Ackerman, who has gone on to become a very distinguished constitutional law scholar with the odd New York Times op-ed every few months. But this was uh, the course he got interested in, and he was a very good introduction indeed. He was a superb teacher. He was a scholar of the Clean Air Act. He had a deep understanding of air pollution and issues that have continued to matter in the decades ever since. And that was sort of the launching point for me. And you realize at that point that, that getting a law degree would help you get into that field and be effective in that field? I hope so. And of course, the, I, I, wanted, I knew I wanted to be a public interest lawyer, Ted, and uh, NRDC was the place where I started after a year at the Department of Justice. It also, of course, is the place where I still am. So I'm almost certainly the only person in your pod, in your distinguished link, uh, list of podcast interviews who's had the same job for 43 years. <laughs> 43 years. That's a good run. And, and it, ain't, it ain't ending anytime soon, is it? I hope not. <laughs> so what did, what did you focus on when you first went to NRDC then? Uh, Ted, when I walked into the door in the San Francisco office of NRDC, I remember this. It was the first day. The uh, conference room was occupied by the senior management of the Pacific Gas and Electric Company, who were being deposed by NRDC lawyers as part of a lawsuit that ultimately went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, and was one of my first cases. It involved whether states had a right to decide not to install more nuclear power plants pending a resolution of a waste disposal dilemma that still hasn't been resolved. Uh, so that case, which was decided in 1983 by the Supreme Court, was part of my introduction to energy law. But the even more important part was that NRDC was involved at that time also in litigation over the energy future of the Pacific Northwest. And my early years at NRDC were mostly about disputes over whether and how to build on the base of the federal Columbia River hydropower system, which remains very much a reality today. But the issue was, do we add a huge fleet of coal and nuclear power plants, or do we try something dramatic and at that point, largely untested called energy efficiency? And you will recall that energy efficiency ended up winning the day in the Pacific Northwest in, a, in as dramatic a way as it's won the day anywhere for all the right reasons. And it was a tremendous opportunity, pleasure, and honor for me to be a small part of that. 
Fantastic. And that was what was that right when Amory had published um, the soft energy path? Uh, Amory published the soft energy path just before. So I, it, that was one of the first things I read when I got to NRDC. Uh, I met Amory in 1980, I think, uh, at an event in the Pacific Northwest, uh, which was sponsored by a group that became the Northwest Energy Coalition. And yes, uh, Amory was very much part of my early education. I'm sure he was of yours as well and many of your listeners. And he's still doing it, of course. He is. And I just, uh, you know, I, I still have my house right next to the Institute's headquarters out there in Snowmass. And and so we we uh, have a, a nice social relationship. He was just over for dinner the other night. He and Judy were just over for dinner the, the other night. And he's he's just the same, I would say. You know, he's just uh, he's just got that passion and that wit. Uh, and he's been so effective. So and when we conclude this interview, Ted, I want to tell you a little about what I'm doing with Amory now, because it's a it's a it's a tremendous uh, new venture drawing on decades of work together oh, uh, that I think pulls on some of his strongest uh, skills. Fantastic. Let's we'll cover that. Um, when I think about your um, some of your biggest accomplishments uh, or one of your biggest accomplishments, I think about your promotion of performance based rate making. Um, and, and for the listeners that don't know, this whole notion of decoupling the, the sale of kilowatt hours, the revenues from kilowatt hours with the, with the profits, the returns that the utilities could make. And was that a, is that over? I mean, have, have, is, have you won that case? I mean, are most utilities in the United States now using PBRM as opposed to just this sort of simple old model? So let's, let's distinguish for a moment, Ted, between performance-based rate making generally, which is a way of uh, trying to reward specific kinds of utility achievement, penalize shortfalls. It, it is an attempt to set up new metrics for success and failure and tie earnings to those. That's, I think, diff it's important. <clears throat> I continue to think it merits attention, not just for me, but a host of others. But revenue decoupling is, in my mind, a little different. Revenue decoupling is a fundamental shift in utilities business models that isn't about establishing metrics or deciding where they earn or how they earn. Revenue decoupling is based on the simple proposition that the financial health of any utility, investor owned or publicly owned, shouldn't rest on throughput of electricity or natural gas through the distribution system. You, you want to break that throughput addiction, and then you want to think about establishing new ways to reward earnings or loss or in, inflict losses. And you certainly don't want to stick with a system necessarily that bases all of the rewards on tonnage of capital invested. But revenue decoupling didn't go to that. It went to the question of how do you, if you have an authorized revenue requirement from your regulator or your local public utility board, is your ability to get that authorized revenue going to depend in part on fluctuations in throughput? And are you going to be better off if you sell more than if you sell less? And it has seemed to me since at least 1980 that it was almost self-evident that throughput addiction was a bad idea. If you wanted utilities to be willing and engaged partners on energy efficiency, which has always been something that I thought was important. I know you have as well. <clears throat> on the specific question of revenue decoupling, Ted, it's still an ongoing discussion, believe it or not. A lot of utility systems have it now. I would say order of magnitude, rule of thumb, 
something like half of revenues, retail revenues for electric and gas utilities is now effectively decoupled, but the other half isn't. So we haven't fully overcome the throughput addiction problem. From my perspective, we've made substantial progress. And I think more and more regulators are coming to understand that they don't want a utilities financial health to be tied to its uh, throughput, its, to its commodity sales. And the fundamental reason you don't want it is this shouldn't be seen as a commodity business. It's way too important for that. <clears throat> and you don't want utilities thinking of themselves that way and marketing themselves that way. And that's true whether you're an investor-owned utility or a publicly-owned utility. You don't have to be a for-profit utility to have throughput addiction. And that became clearest to me working with the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, where they were responsible through their revenues for paying part of the police and fire bill for the city of Los Angeles. And if their throughput went down, they couldn't support the police and fire department. And that didn't make any sense. So they have revenue decoupling now. And they're glad they do. Yeah. Yeah, it, you're just fundamentally shaking the business model. I used to describe mm -hmm. it as, you know, if you if you were a manufacturer of yo-yos, you would want to sell as many as possible. And that's, yeah. how, you, that's how you'd make your money. And that's what utilities were doing. But I, I really like the way you put that um, it's not a commodity business, uh, the electric utility industry. It's it's you, I think you said it's too important, right? It's it's too important societally for it. Just yes, but it, when you and I started, Ted, it, it very much the industry itself thought of itself as a commodity business, uh, and much of the writing about it and much of the regulation was right. tied to that. Now I hope hopelessly outmoded notion. Yeah. Um, so we still we still have a ways to go, but I I do think by and large people are persuaded that it's too important to be a commodity business. Yeah. Yeah. Let's shift gears pretty dramatically to net energy metering because okay. I think that NRDC has taken a, a sort of a contrarian position to much of the environmental community on net energy metering. Um, and obviously we've gone from NEM with the original one to NEM two, and now there's something that we were, I guess a few weeks ago, we were taught to call it net billing and now it's gonna be solar billing. So this net energy metering three is now, is now uh, being- yep being rolled out. Is that right that NRDC uh, did take a, a position that that net energy metering, especially the the value of the export credit was too generous and that that uh, the, the wealthy were being subsidized uh, and that the utilities were being penalized in this equation? Well, it had so it wasn't about penalizing utilities, first of all, Ted. And the only state in which we took that position was California. Uh, it's, it, it's not about utility welfare in California. The problem in California had become that the total compensation for rooftop solar was so generous that it was increasingly making electricity unaffordable for everyone and impeding a decarbonization imperative that is widely shared throughout the environmental community. NRDC's position isn't contrarian on net energy metering generally. NRDC and most of the environmental movement believes that it's a good way to jumpstart the solar industry uh, and to get more solar installations and to essentially build a foundation of a healthy industry. But when you came to California, where compensation rates were approaching and exceeding 40 cents a kilowatt hour, and the number of installations, which at this point is over a million households, was becoming collectively a significant factor in electricity bills that were pushing well above national norms after decades of California having lower than average residential electric bills. 
Mm-hmm. That was those were special circumstances, Ted, and those caused us to, with a number of others, including our leading consumer advocates, come forward and say we need. We're not embracing the utility position, which would have effectively snuffed out rooftop solar, but we think there's a middle course here that can maintain a healthy solar industry without driving electricity costs to unaffordable levels. And that is a compromise that the California Public Utilities Commission has now embraced. They rejected the utility position. They rejected business as usual. They found a middle course, and I think it'll work. Did, did you, you describe that very well. Um, did your members of NRDC, did they get that? I mean, that's, it's a pretty complicated, that's a pretty complicated rationale, right? I mean, the, the average uh, environmentalist, I consider myself one, very average. Yep. Uh, we want solar. We want rooftop solar. Uh, don't, don't give me all the reasons why not. Uh, we want rooftop solar. We're on a good trajectory now. And, and then Kavana and company come along and say, no, this is not quite right. Um, were your members? Well, Kavanaugh Company come along and say we want rooftop solar, uh, but we do not want it at the expense of many other important parts of, the, of an affordable clean energy transition. We want a portfolio, and I think Ted actually, yeah, our members get this in the sense that we've always been about pushing multiple clean energy solutions, balancing and integrating them. And what was happening with roof, a problem with rooftop solar in particular in California, and I think it's, it's something we need to get to on, uh, in, on a, in a way that goes well beyond net energy metering, is that we had a grid that was increasingly unable to accommodate it uh, in the sense that we were for an increasing number of hours seeing rooftop solar pushing other solar and other wind off the grid. Uh, we could not use it effectively within the state. That's a problem of a balkanized Western grid. It's a problem that should be a high priority for everybody in the region who likes rooftop solar as we do and wants to make sure that we can use every clean kilowatt hour we produced to displace fossil fuel uh, instead of literally having to throw it away during some hours of the day, which was increasingly happening in the, over the past, of the course of the past several years. Now we're making progress on that. Uh, in terms of Western grid integration, and I know we'll get to that later in the conversation. In terms of how our members feel about rooftop solar, it is important to emphasize, Ted, you will never hear me or anyone at NRDC in any way undercut the importance of all forms of solar generation, rooftop to utility scale, with the right siting, of course, as part of our clean energy transition. It's a critical part. And if you ever hear me saying anything else or to the contrary, I know you'll be among the first I hear from. But it is obviously possible to overpay for a good thing. Yeah. Uh, it occasionally happens. It was happening in California before the PUC found the middle course. And I don't know that that's an impossible concept to get across to a relatively sophisticated NRDC membership. So I'd say by and large, Ted, I think people are comfortable with where we are. Uh, they are comfortable with the notion that the commission found a middle path. Uh, it did not, it, business as usual, Ted, really was not sustainable in terms of where California's electricity costs were going. And if you want affordable electrification, as all of us do, that's got to be a concern. But now I think we've, we've, we're on the right path. We're still going to have more rooftop solar than anyone else. We're proud of it. Uh, but we're also going to have a full portfolio of clean energy solutions that everyone's going to be able to afford. Yeah, well put. And I, I think that with the with the rise of storage or the in the, the fall in price of storage, 
that if we can just couple that rooftop solar with storage, couple all solar with storage, couple all renewable yeah. with storage, then we've got valuable resources that can be used when we couple need them with storage, Ted, and with a big, well-managed regional grid with a lot of geographic diversity, which right. is an equally important part of the solution. Which, which is another form of storage. You're yes, just, yes. Well, a well, grid is a wonderful way to store electricity if you manage it well. Yeah. Let's talk about your 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 nuclear position or your anti-nuclear position. You were that was your initiation, uh, well, part of your initiation at NRDC. But it, you have, I think, I'm right in saying that you have maintained an anti-nuclear position throughout your career. Ted, you are for once completely wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's be clear on what I by, by uh, although I certainly have been characters characterized that way on occasion. And we'll come to Diablo Canyon in a minute, because I think yeah. that's where most, to the extent people have a sense of me as part of a nuclear conversation, it's there. Uh, what I have said about nuclear power since the first day I arrived at NRDC, and remember you had those, those the reason those PG&E executives were in that conference room being deposed was over a dispute about the deployment of nuclear power. Yeah. People ask me if nuclear power is on the table or should be on the table. And my response is it's been on the table for as long as I've been alive. It has not performed competitively uh, in, a, in a manner that would allow it to expand its position on the table for at least four decades now. The most recent illustration being the tragedy at Vogel in Georgia, where two nuclear power plants are going to end up being the most expensive power plant ever built at a cost of probably $40 billion, uh, with uh, cost, both cost overruns and delays that are unfortunately all too characteristic of the history of the industry. Uh, so I don't think nuclear power is competitive, but I don't view it as a theological matter. Uh, I, I am not uh, morally affronted by the existence of nuclear plants. And in the case of Diablo Canyon, NRDC helped negotiate an agreement that extended its life by seven years. We did that back in 2016. The plant would have closed down in 2018 uh, without an extension of permits that our agreement made possible. And we did that because we wanted to make sure that when Diablo Canyon retired at the close of its federal license in 2025, there would be clean energy alternatives ready to replace it in an affordable way. Uh, so I think you can say, Ted, fairly that I have been skeptical over four decades based on experience. Uh, and based also on what's happened globally, as we've watched nuclear power's market share peak in the late 1990s at about 18%, it's below 10% today. Uh, you can look at last year's nuclear installations versus renewable installations. There's a 500 to one disparity, and it isn't favorable to nuclear. And you can basically say, look, this is a clean energy option that doesn't seem to be winning on a substantial scale anywhere. And it's a good news story in the end, Ted, because the reason it's not winning is there's so many lower cost, more reliable alternatives, which are taking up that market share. That's what happened in the Pacific Northwest starting when I began at NRDC in 1979. It's what's been happening nationally and globally. It doesn't mean they're out. Uh, they could conceivably come back with something better and nobody should rule out the possibility. I don't. But they've got a long way to go. Right. And, and but the Bill Gates, Bill Gates of this world and Hal Harvey, and lots of others, you know, uh, environmentalists that are just saying we need everything. We need every clean energy resource. Yes. So this is so, Ted, I have to, and I have to say I, I do hear that the, the all of the above language, which obviously has also been used to justify every form of fossil fuel investment, 
<laughs> the difficulty with it is, of course, if you're for everything, uh, you have no facility. You have in, in a world of limited resources, you're not really contributing very much. In the end, there are difficult choices to make. We don't have infinite amounts to spend on decarbonization or energy resources. So you need a way to let the winners and losers emerge on the merits. That's what I have been for from day one, is to simply say, look, I want to make sure we can't, since we can't have every, an infinite amount of everything, we really do need a way of making choices. And the great, I think the great contribution of the Northwest region starting in 1980 was to set up a framework uh, which you and I have since had many conversations about, that allowed in particular energy efficiency to compete head to head with the conventional supply resources that were on the table at that time and are still on the table. And what we found is if you gave energy efficiency a fair shot, it almost always won to the point that energy efficiency is now the second largest resource in the Pacific Northwest after that magnificent hydropower system. And it got there on its competitive merits. It didn't get there because anyone ruled anything else in or out. So yes, I think everything's on the table is different from all of the above. Right. And you still need a way to let the winners and losers emerge on the merits. You need a reasonable way to do it. Utility systems across the country over your and my careers have gotten, I think, increasingly good at that. And the nuclear plants haven't been winning those competitions. The coal plants haven't been winning those competitions. Yeah. The efficiency and renewable resources have been winning. And you kind of touched on this whole framework of least cost planning or least cost utility planning that was yep. so so darn logical, but so revolutionary uh, in, in that stodgy industry. Uh, and, and before I forget, I mean, Amory's comment about using nuclear power to generate electricity is like using a chainsaw to cut butter. Uh, right. was always one of my very favorite one of my very favorites let's talk about your current works uh you okay what you're doing with the western grid now yeah the, the I, what i'm doing with the western grid now is trying to help a whole lot of other people overcome a severely fragmented structure that is impeding decarbonization and reliability across the west and i can dramatize it best this way in 1998, I was part of a Department of Energy task force looking at electric system reliability. And our report, 1998 report, indicated that the most fragmented part of the West of the North American grid was the American West, that the American West had 34 different balancing authorities, little fiefdoms within the grid that were responsible for managing that particular geographic pocket for no rational reason. That's just the way the system had evolved. 34 balancing authorities for one Western grid. Well, today, Ted, there are 38 balancing authorities for one Western grid. We've actually gone backward. The rest of the country has moved to consolidate operations. Uh, the West now has more than half the balancing authorities in the United States. And places like you know, the PJM, the, the, uh, the, uh, mid, the mid-continent uh, system oh. operator, those systems have one integrated grid that's managed from uh, one institution with obviously lots of stakeholder engagement, but the fiefdoms have been removed and the integration at least has been achieved. We haven't done that in the West yet and we urgently need to. Uh, And the reason we haven't done it is in part because the logical candidate for doing it, the California Independent System Operator, uh, has a governance system that the rest of the West won't accept. It's five board members appointed by the governor of California. It's understandable why the rest of the West doesn't want that. California wouldn't want a regional system operator with five members appointed by the governor of, oh, let's say, Wyoming. 
Yeah. The solution is also, I think, pretty clear. We need to transition quickly to a fully independent board with diverse experts that's not political appointees. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the first step in what will then be a rapidly emerging, fully integrated Western power grid. Uh, so that's front of mind for me at the moment. There's legislation pending to do that in Sacramento, introduced by a terrific assemblyman named Chris Holden from Pasadena, who is one of the top experts in the country on this, has been working on it for many years, and is working with legislators and regulators across the West to make this happen. Uh, I think for anyone who cares about decarbonization, you want it isn't that big grids are a substitute for, say, small-scale, decentralized, distributed resources. They are a tremendous enabler uh, for more of those resources to get deployed and for their output to be used effectively, uh, even as they are a wonderful assist to reliability in an era of severe weather driven by climate change with increasing challenges to just keeping the system up the more geographic diversity you can introduce, uh, the more you can spare people the horrors associated with incidents like February 2021 in Texas. Texas doesn't have those interconnections, doesn't have, Texas is too small uh, to create the kind of geographic diversity that, for example, we've got in the West. The Western grid is seven times the size of Texas. It's got robust interconnections. California has 20,000 megawatts of connections to its neighbors, Texas has 800. But still, we do not manage that Western system as effectively as we could, and we have unnecessarily high costs associated with the fragmentation. So that I, th I think is a major priority uh, in, the, in the period immediately ahead. And then the great task of actually getting that regional transmission organization together and putting it fully behind what is now there's a lot of regional consensus, overwhelming regional consensus behind a clean energy transition in the West. We need that big grid supporting us, even as we need all our decentralized resources working together uh, to support us. Two quick follow-up questions on that. Are the CCAs, the community choice aggregators, adding to this, this fiefdom-like uh, system that we had, or is that not relevant? To them. No, it's not. So that's not real. And, and Ted, indeed, some of the most important supporters in the last in the session of the legislature who la that last considered this came from the CCA community. The CCAs are involved in resource procurement. They are they stand to benefit greatly from a system that reduces the cost of renewable energy and creates more revenue streams for those who develop renewable resources. They are winners in this. They don't manage the fiefdoms. The fiefdoms are managed by they're unnecessarily small and constrained transmission organizations, or just they're just balancing load and resources, Ted. Uh, but in doing it in this inefficient way, they're driving up costs and reducing reliability for everyone, including the CCAs. So the fix is to change the governance of the of the ISO, and then perhaps to broaden the purview of the ISO. I mean, All you, I think, once you change the governance, Ted, you basically then you throw open the doors. And anyone who wants to can come in. It's, it's a voluntary system. RTOs are voluntary organizations. But my very confident prediction is everyone will come. You build this one and they'll be beating a path to your door because there is broad consensus across the entire West now of the value of full integration. And Ted, the moment where it really came home, even to the skeptics, remember this past September, the historic Western heat wave in its way every bit as awful an event as the Texas winter storm of February 2021, except that the Western grid stayed up.
because of extraordinary region-wide cooperation that was effectively mimicking a regional transmission organization out of sheer desperate necessity, uh, even though we didn't have one. And it was a reminder to everybody who cares about system reliability, which is everybody, just how much it matters to have a well-managed big regional grid. Without it, that would have been an awful memory still for many across the region, even as that Texas horror is reverberating to this day. What are you doing now with decarbonization? That, that's another big part of your current work. It, it is. Ted, what I'm trying to do with decarbonization is to make sure, first and foremost, that everyone remembers just how critical energy efficiency is to decarbonization. Decarbonization is not just about transmission. It's not just about renewable resources. It's about making sure we're getting as much work as we can out of that electricity. And the specific context in which I'm focused at the moment uh, that I think brings this home for me, it's in the area of electrifying transportation. Uh, and in electrifying transportation, which virtually everyone I know is for, almost nobody talks about just how critical it is whether the, the cars are going to get 10 miles a kilowatt hour or two miles a kilowatt hour. It turns out it matters a whole lot. And of course, the person who figured this out first, no surprise, is Amory Lovins. Yeah. He had a deep understanding of vehicle efficiency opportunities 30 years ago when he was the lead expert witness in a science trial on fuel economy conducted by the National Research Council of the National Academy of Sciences. I remember that vividly because I was the lawyer who brought him in. It was a good move. Amory was a very effective expert witness who totally terrified over the course of the week the senior management of every major automobile manufacturer in the world. And he stayed with the issue ever since, but now he's more and more focused on, okay, I broke the code on internal combustion vehicles, but there's a code to break also for electric vehicles. It's not that we don't want, electric vehicles have overwhelming inherent efficiency advantages over internal combustion. No one disputes that. But to fully exploit those advantages, we need to pay a lot more attention to what will get us to 10, as opposed to what might hold us at two. This is miles per kilowatt hour again. I realize, yeah, my, my little electric vehicle gets four, uh, which is okay. But you know, Ted, that's not bad, but you need to know that, remember 20 years ago, the GM Insight, the, 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 uh, the little the sports impact. car that was the, the basis for who killed the electric car? That got five, five miles a kilowatt hour, Ted. That was so with you, a you represent battery. a regression. That was with a lead-acid battery, too. Yes, and that was with a lead-acid battery and a whole lot of other uh, inefficiencies. So we leave the listeners real, recognizing that not all EVs are as efficient as, as the next, right? We really That's right. There, there is variation now, and there could be much more. Uh, the case that we will look forward to making in a report we're working on now with the Electric Power Research Institute is just how much difference does it make for the grid and the people who use it? whether you go to full cost-effective efficiency frontiers, which don't appear in any cars yet, or whether you regress uh, to giant mastodon-like SUVs that get all of their range out of a kind of a brute force battery addition strategy and don't pay any attention to efficiency at all. Those are both, I think, realistic scenarios right now. And I wanna do all I can to push us toward the better one. Thanks for all, thanks for all you're doing. Ralph, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate your career. It's not over. I appreciate what you've done, how you've taught so many of us. So um, carry on. Uh, Ted, I will, I, I will say all the same about you and then just uh, remind you of how much I think a conversation of some four uh, decades uh, duration now means to me personally. Great to talk to you. Yeah, have a great day. You too. That's it. 
Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.